Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Eric Rivenis, and welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. The 1930s saw the rise of a new breed of criminal, the machine gun-toting, fast-car-driving, bank-robbing version. And Machine Gun Kelly, of course, was one of this ilk, a man that made national headlines during the Depression and became a legendary figure in the process. My guest today, Joe Urschel, is the executive director of the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C., He's written a book called The Year of Fear, Machine Gun Kelly and the Manhunt That Changed the Nation, available on Amazon, and he's here today to talk with me about it. Thank you, Mr. Joe Urschel, for your time. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention right off the bat the elephant in the room. Your last name is Urschel, and the subject of your book, Machine Gun Kelly, Kidnapped an Urschel. Is there a connection there? <laughs> uh well, I knew you were going to ask that. Everybody does. Uh, and there, there is not a familial connection, uh, at least dating back until the pre-German Republic. So <laughs> I have no uh, relatives uh, in, in my line that are related to Charles Urschel's line. Although I, I did, uh, you know, when I discovered this story, uh, some 30 or more years ago, uh, I was in the Library of Congress and I just I, I punched in my last name into their new digital database, just kind of on a lark, and uh, up popped the name of Charles Urschel. He was the only one with any reference in the Library of Congress, which of course is supposed to be the greatest collection of knowledge in the world. And uh, it was, uh, so I see Charles Urschel, comma, kidnap victim, and there's one book about uh, the story in the library, and that was written in 1934 by one of the uh, people who were involved. So uh, I called that book up and, uh, and, and read through it, and it's just, I uh, found it to be a fascinating story, obviously. 
so with that finished, I, I, of course, asked my dad, I said, you know, hey, are we related to this guy in any way? And he said, no, 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 we're not. And I said, well, how do you know? And he says, we're just, we're not. So like any good son, I set off to prove my dad wrong and did a lot of uh, <laughs> genealogical research and uh, basically came up dry uh, for as far back as I looked. So with that, I decided to keep pursuing the story anyway. And the more I dug into it, the better the story got. The era of the Midwest bank robbing gangster in the early 1930s is a pretty spectacular one. And there are a lot of big names. John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, Pretty Boy Floyd, Bonnie and Clyde, and the Barker Carpus Gang, to name some of the headliners. And fitting into that marquee would be Machine Gun Kelly. While most of us have seen movies about Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, we know less about Kelly from popular culture. But his life definitely played out like a movie, didn't it? It absolutely did. He was uh, he was unlike most of those other guys and women that you mentioned uh, in that he was he was not a guy that grew up uh, impoverished or on a farm or anything like that. He was uh, a middle class kid from Memphis, Tennessee. You know, kind of worked as a uh, caddy to earn money uh, until he got into the business of bootlegging, which he did when he when he was in high school and he discovered his father in a tryst with another woman across town. And he basically blackmailed his dad into giving him the family car and to um, staking him out in his business and giving him a handsome allowance that he could use to jump across the state line into Arkansas. Tennessee was dry at the time uh, and they just ferry uh, liquor back. And that basically started him on the uh, proverbial road to ruin. But, you know, he went to college for a semester. Uh, he was a fairly intelligent guy. When he ended up uh, in Alcatraz, you know, they gave him uh, psychological tests and intelligence tests, and he scored, uh, he scored extremely high on the intelligence tests. And uh, he had absolutely no uh, psychotic tendencies or um, didn't really have the classic criminal uh, profile. One of the things I love about this whole story is the relationship between George and Catherine Kelly. Now, a lot of these 1930s duos were together romantically. Besides the obvious couples, Bonnie and Clyde, there was also Lester Gillis, a.k.a. Babyface Nelson, and his wife, Helen Gillis. The Kellys were married, and he was head over heels for her, and really protective, too. But he still took her on these dangerous adventures. Can you talk about what their relationship was like? Yeah. So George Kelly was, in 1930, he, he is a fairly well-established bootlegger and bank robber. Uh, and he's got all of the skills and all of the equipment. You know, he's got beautiful, fast, 16-cylinder Cadillac. Uh, he looks like a million bucks. He dresses well. And uh, he runs across Catherine Kelly. She's been through, at the time she meets him, at least two husbands, one of whom she killed when she caught him in, a, in, a, in an affair with another woman. They got in a, in a terrible fight, and uh, he ended up with a bullet through his head. And um, she penned out a suicide note, called the police, and, and that was the end of that. But anyway, when she meets 
she meets Kelly, she is just head over heels in, in love with him, not just because he's kind of a rich bank robber, but also because he's got a lot of style and a lot of class. And he's really well connected with a lot of really bad characters up north, uh, basically out of Kansas City and St. Paul. So she sees him kind of as her ticket to uh, to fame and riches. Not that they weren't in in love as well. I mean, they uh, they basically eloped. She was living with another guy when she uh, when she falls for him, uh, and they end up uh, jumping in the car and running off to St. Paul to get married, uh, but not before she steals her boyfriend's uh, her ex boyfriend's uh, prized bulldog to bring along in the trail. She. She liked diamonds, she liked jewelry, she liked uh, designer clothes, and, and uh, she really liked her dogs as well. Machine Gun Kelly committed a lot of crimes in his life, but there is one that he's most famous for, of course, the kidnapping of Charles Urschel. Can you talk about that kidnapping and how it all went down? Yeah, Charles Urschel is a fascinating character. He's probably the most fascinating in this collection of otherwise equally fascinating uh, characters. I mean, he, he was a guy who uh, he grew up on a farm, kind of, kind of poor. And like most farmers of that era, he was looking for any way to get out of it. Uh, he enlisted in uh, the army in world war one. And when he got out, he decided he was not going back to the farm and he took off for um, Texas and Oklahoma where he was hoping to make uh, his name in the oil business, see if he could break into it somehow. You know, this is kind of the infancy of the oil business when if you if you had a lot of tenacity and a little bit of money to stake, you could uh, you could make a fortune striking oil. So he he takes off and he ends up partnering up with a guy uh, with the greatest name possible for an oil man, a guy named Tom Slick. And uh, so Slick, who was kind of down on his luck when Urschel met him, suddenly finds a huge oil field. And he stakes it out, and he and Urschel ma- manage to buy up uh, a lot of the, a lot, if not all of the leases that are available before anybody else discovers how much oil is down there. And so by teaming up with Slick, he rockets to to, uh, to wealth almost overnight, uh, running the company for Slick. Uh, you know, Urschel was kind of a uh, kind of the detail man. He was the again, in today's terms, he would probably be the chief financial officer. Uh, he, you know, he knew how to keep numbers in his head. He remembered everything. He had kind of a photographic memory, uh, which would later turn out to to suit him well when he gets kidnapped. But anyway, along the line, Tom Slick dies of a massive cerebral hemorrhage uh, while he was still in his 40s. And Urschel then marries his widow and ends up combining two huge oil fortunes, which the Oklahoma newspapers at the time took great notice of. And they were writing about you know, how, how wealthy the uh, Urschels were and how this uh, marriage had generated this huge estate and all of the money that could be made uh, if they would be taxed. And so Herschel's name was in the headlines all over the place for being a very wealthy guy. And Catherine Kelly, who wanted to get George into the kidnapping racket, noticed Herschel's name, and she is the one who suggested that they ought to kidnap Herschel because he had all of this money 
and they'd be able to ransom him for a record amount of money, which they did, $200,000, and his widow, or his wife, I'm sorry, would be able to pay it off, if not his company. So she kind of had that brainstorm. And you have to keep in mind that what was happening at the time, after 1929, of course, the, the, the country went into a terrible depression. And out west, on top of the depression, you had the Dust Bowl kicking up. Uh, and so farmers you know, were going bankrupt, and the, and the banks were foreclosing on their property, and uh, the banks were running out of money themselves. And so Kelly, uh, or the Kellys, uh, who made their money basically robbing banks, suddenly found that, wow, there's not so much money in the banks anymore when we knock them over. And uh, their lucrative sideline of uh, running liquor was going to be coming to an end because uh, with the election of FDR, uh, who had promised to roll back the uh, prohibition, prohibition would be ending in 1933, the year that this kidnapping took place. Uh, so in desperation, uh, a lot of guys uh, like Kelly turned to this other form of making money where instead of robbing a bank, you'd basically kidnap a wealthy individual who had a lot of money in the bank and then ransom him off and then uh, give him back with the promise that, hey, you know, we'll, we'll let you go unharmed. But if you go to the authorities, particularly to uh, the federal authorities, uh, we'll come back and not only kill you, but we'll kill the rest of your family as well. And uh, that worked pretty well for quite a while. In fact, there were uh, estimated to be about 2,000 kidnappings between 1930 and 1933 when this one occurred. And some pretty big name ones, too. The Barker Carpus gang kidnaps William Ham Jr. in June of 1933, and then the Kellys kidnap Urschel in July of the same year, and then the Barker Carpus gang again kidnaps Edward Bremer in January of 34. And these were all huge headline kidnappings. And Hoover definitely had his hands full for a while. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the unfortunate timing for the Kellys turned out to be the fact that one month before they pulled off this kidnapping, the laws changed, and the Attorney General empowered the Justice Department and its Bureau of Investigation to be the only law enforcement agency in the country allowed to cross state lines in pursuit of uh, kidnappers. And they got this authority basically because they had been unable to solve the Lindbergh kidnapping, which had occurred about 18 months prior to this one. And the president and the country were getting impatient with the fact that uh, this, this crime hadn't been solved. I mean, Lindbergh at the time was the greatest celebrity in the world. Uh, and it was just a travesty that uh, the American law enforcement couldn't solve this, uh, this kidnapping. So J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the Bureau at the time, ends up with this new power. And suddenly this kidnapping lands right on his desk because unlike a lot of the other kidnapped victims, Herschel's wife immediately called up the feds and called in the local law enforcement to get her husband back. And it was the timing on it was was just incredible because uh, J. Edgar Hoover had decided to set up uh, what a lot of people believe is the first national crime hotline. And he, he published a number that you could call if you were the victim of a kidnapping or any other federal crime. Right. 
and and the call would go immediately to would go directly into the Justice Department in Washington D.C. and they would then they would dispatch their agents. So Bernice Kelly, who makes the call uh, at about eleven o'clock, eleven thirty at night, eleven thirty twelve at night um, Central Time, she calls into this number which she had seen in Time magazine just a week before. Uh, and the call, J. Edgar Hoover was so eager to get an early uh, tip on a kidnapping, <laughs> they had, he actually had the line extended into his house. And so uh, they put the call through to him and wake him up at 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, Eastern Time. And he, he's got Bernice Urschel on the other side of the uh, telephone, and um, she says, I want to report a kidnapping. And, he, and he's like, okay, give me every detail you can. And uh, with that, he calls up uh, his, his best agents, which he had placed in Kansas City just uh, a month before, to work on the Kansas City massacre story. And he, he, he sends them directly to Oklahoma City to solve this kidnapping. It's just a fascinating story, and Jade Gerhoover plays an important role in your book. Can you talk a bit more about Hoover's relationship with George Kelly? Well, he he becomes a, immediately obsessed with this case uh, because, for one thing, his job is on the line. Uh, he he almost didn't keep his job when FDR was elected. Uh, FDR's first choice for attorney general had vowed to get rid of Hoover, whom he had a personal uh, grudge against because of an investigation that Hoover had launched into um, into him when he was a uh, senator from Wyoming. But uh, Tom Walsh was his name, but he never actually made it to Washington because he, he ends up dying of a heart attack on the train two days after his wedding uh, on his way up to Washington. So the second choice for attorney general is a man named Homer Cummings. And Cummings is a seasoned politician, and he really wants to make his mark with uh, the the new Roosevelt administration. So uh, he's got the Justice Department, and he's got this case landing in his lap, and he basically reads the Riot Act to to Hoover saying, we've got to solve this, and we'll we'll do anything to bring these guys to justice and send them off to prison and keep them there for the rest of their lives. So Hoover's getting a lot of pressure from upstairs, and he's also uh, getting a lot of pressure because he, he's new to the crime-solving business. I mean, he, uh, the Justice Department and the Bureau at the time were basically uh, collections of uh, lawyers and, and bureaucrats and accountants who would help local police kind of build evidence for a, a, a case. You know, they didn't have the power to arrest people. They, they didn't carry weapons. And suddenly they're going up uh, against a bunch of notorious gangsters. So Hoover is just, is just just dogs this story. I mean, he get he gets his best agent, a really colorful guy named Gus Jones out of Texas, and has him leading up the investigation. And of course, Urschel is a great help to them. But Hoover. He chases them over 16 state lines covering about 20,000 miles, and he's on the phone constantly with these agents. Every day they're required to call in, tell them what's going on, uh, and he's, you know, the FBI files are just full of memos that he's shooting out to these people day after day, hour after hour, reprimanding them for making a mistake, you know, getting on their case for letting Kelly slip through their fingers. But, you know, he... He just early on decided, this is make it, make it or break it for me, and uh, I'm going to make it. And, you know, of all the things you can say about J. Edgar Hoover, he was not a guy who would give up easily. So right. 
<laughs> he ends up bringing the case to uh, to trial and, and solving it, but not without the help of Charles. The, the story of the kidnapping is interesting too. I mean, it, it's Kelly uh, basically on orders from from his wife, who's done all the research on this breaks into Urschel's home at 11.30 at night and discovers that he and his wife are playing bridge with another couple on their sun porch. And it's so dark, and Kelly is so ill-prepared, he doesn't know which of the guys is Urschel. So he, he says to them, okay, we're here for Urschel. Which one's Urschel? And uh, neither of them respond. So the other guy, Walter Jarrett was his name, he starts to stand up and identify himself as Urschel in order to save his buddy. So Urschel stands up at the same time to not allow him to do that. And uh, so consequently, Kelly says, all right, we're going to take you both. And they take them both and they, they put them in the uh, getaway car and they drive away and they're driving over a country road when, when suddenly uh, they get the realization that they could just look at these guys' uh, driver's licenses, looking into their wallet and figure out which one was Urschel. So so they do, and they take all the money out of both wallets. They give Jarrett $10 for a cab, kick him out of the car, and uh, drive off with Urschel into the night. Little did they know that Walter Jarrett was a wealthy oil man, too, so they could have kind of gotten two for the price of one, but uh, they neglected to do much, that much research on it. So, by the, so they take Urschel down to this farmhouse. It's Catherine Kelly's father-in-law owns this farm. And a guy named Boss Shannon. And uh, so they hide Urschel. They, they, they tape his eyes shut. They put cotton in his ears and tape his ears closed. So basically, he's virtually blind and deaf for the eight days that they hold him. Uh, but the entire time he's there, he's collecting information so that he can figure out how to come back and get them. So he's collecting information like he realizes he's on a farm. He figures out how many buildings are on the farm. Uh, he, he knows what the well water tastes like, how the, how the handle squeaks when they pull it up. He knows how many animals they have. Uh, they know what kind of animals. He, he talks to the people who are holding him from time to time and figures out the name of the uh, postman and the name of the local prostitute. Uh, and he also notices that twice a day, a plane crosses overhead. Uh, in the morning, it's going east, and in the, in the uh, evening, it's going west. And by you know, shrewdly asking questions, uh, not at the time of the plane, but either a little before or a little after, he figures out that it, it comes at 9.30 in the morning and 5.30 in the evening. And he puts that into his bank of information uh, and continues to like put his fingerprints everywhere he can find uh, a spot to take them and and just gather more and more information so that when he's finally released and he goes to uh, Gus Jones to be interviewed, Gus Jones tells him, well, you know, in most of these cases, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. But then after he interviewed, he talks to he talks to Urschel for two and a half hours and he collects all of this information and he says, says to him, well, you know, the haystack just got a lot smaller. <laughs> and sure enough, they, they, get in a, they get in a plane that Herschel borrows from one of his uh, oil company buddies, and they, they fly low over the route of the plane that they were able to identify from uh, uh, Herschel's surveillance. And, uh, and they look down, and sure enough, they see a farm that looks pretty much like the one he described, and they organize a raiding party. And Herschel insists on being in the lead car with a sawed-off shotgun across his lap. 
back after a word from our sponsors. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned to the interview. And Urschel will get the satisfaction eventually of seeing the Kellys locked up. But later on in life, he shuns the spotlight. And he even warns his children and grandchildren about staying out of the press. So he, I mean, he blamed this whole kidnapping kind of on the press and on the fact that they had outed him so thoroughly. Uh, so he had a lifelong disdain for publicity of any kind. He basically uh, shrank back into the shadows, and he ran his oil company. Um, he established a lot of nonprofits. His son started the uh, uh, Center for Biomedical Research in San Antonio. But he, he kept his name and his picture out of the papers, out of the press, he wasn't mentioned anywhere. He was so deep in the shadows that in uh, the 1950s, when Forbes magazine did a story about the five richest men in Texas, the Hunt brothers and a couple others, Herschel uh, he, was number five, and uh, they didn't even have a picture of him. <laughs> they just ran him, ran his name without a picture. Wow. And I, it's funny because when I was researching the uh, 
the story, you know, I, I looked up uh, his granddaughter and the, the grandchildren of other people who were involved in the case. And uh, he had told his kids to, to stay out of the limelight and to shun publicity, which they did. But that attitude, you know, trickled down all the way even to his grandchildren, who, who are very reluctant to this day to talk to anybody about this story. Uh, I think I was able to penetrate that wall a little bit because because I did have the same last name, and, 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 it, ha- and it has been so long since the, uh, the case occurred. But yeah, he was quite a uh, headstrong individual. Interestingly, when Kelly finally comes, after they ca- they finally catch Kelly and everybody else involved, they had about, uh, about 15 people on trial. 11 of them get sentenced to life in prison, uh, including several people who had nothing to do with it. Catherine's mother, for one. And so, so Catherine's mother ends up with a life sentence. Catherine is in prison. Catherine's got a daughter from a previous marriage who's who's just a teenager at the time, or a pre-teenager at the time, and there's no one left to take care of her because her uh, her mother's in prison and her, and her grandmother, uh, with whom she was living, is now in prison. So unbeknownst to anyone, Urschel arranges to keep her housed and clothed and have her education paid for all the way through college. And, you know, that little shred of information didn't become evident until... Uh, I believe it was early in the 1970s when uh, uh, somebody was going through the uh, to Judge Vaught, who was who ran the trial, who was a personal friend of Urschel's. He had administered the uh, the payments so that nobody would know uh, where they were coming from. Uh, and his papers, when he died, were found in a uh, in a yard sale, and some enterprising uh, history sleuth went through them and found uh, found all of this uh, paperwork. I have to say that that says a lot about his character. Yeah, yeah, it does. And in fact, uh, you know, Harvey Bailey, uh, who was thought to be the greatest bank robber in U.S. history, uh, was arrested at the farm. He, too, had nothing to do with the kidnapping. He was just there hiding out uh, when the raiding party arrived. So he ends up with a life sentence as well. Even though he had nothing to do with it, and uh, and the uh, and Hoover's men knew he had nothing to do with it, and and Hoover refused to let him to let him up for parole, you know, for 20 years or more. Finally, Urschel convinced Hoover that it was time to let him go. Uh, they put him up for parole. He was paroled, and Urschel arranged to get him a job as a cabinet maker in Joplin, Missouri, uh, and put him up uh, in a room at the YMCA there. And that's part of what's so fun about your book. You have these great stories about some of these associates of the Kelly gang, like Harvey Bailey. And Bailey was considered the dean of bank robbery at the time. And other gangsters looked up to him for his safe cracking and his bank casing skills, didn't they? Yeah, he uh, he made his name. In, he's another guy who tried to stay out of the limelight because he didn't want to get. Uh, obviously, he didn't want to get. He didn't want to claim credit for too many bank robberies. He would get caught and he get put in prison. But anyway, he. So throughout the 1920s, he was just robbing banks left and right, and he kind of perfected the the what they refer to as a modern form of bank robbing, where you. Uh, you know, you really case the bank. You figure out when it's got the most money in the vaults. You know where the uh, guard is. You know where the local police are. You know what kind of uh, cars uh, the police are driving, if they in fact even have cars. And so you have the right kind of car to outrun them. Uh, you've got to 
plan out your escape routes and alternate escape routes on back roads where you can lose the police. And basically, he, you know, he made so much money robbing banks in the 1920s that uh, he, he kind of retired for a while and was running a chain of gas stations in Chicago when the stock market crashed. And he lost a lot of his money and he had to go back into robbing banks full time. Uh, and that's when he ends up back in St. Paul, where he meets George Kelly and basically teaches him how to rob banks. Uh, as you know, I mean, he, he was working out of the, uh, uh, the Green Lantern Tavern there, right. as well as a number of other crooks that would use the, the tavern as kind of a, a, a place to get together and plan jobs and build a crew and take off and, uh, and then retreat to. The story has, has just got a great ensemble cast. You know, it's, it's got Bailey, who's just as colorful as as you could imagine, and then there's uh, then there's Vern Miller, who's also working out of St. Paul, who's one of the most most lethal gunmen going, um, responsible for the Kansas City massacre, uh, and he ends up befriending uh, Kelly as well. It's so interesting to me how all these Midwest bank robbing gangsters actually ran in the same circles. Yeah, yeah, they were, and uh, and they really were. Uh, I mean, a lot of them really, really took it as a profession. For what kind of a for what kind of a job they would need certain kind of people. They might need a safe cracker. They might need a wheelman. They might need multiple wheelmen. They might need uh, somebody who was good with a gun. They might not. And so they would just they would just kind of build these teams. It was like uh, it's like the baseball draft or something. They would just like uh, pick guys to go on various jobs with them. Now, how did George Kelly get his nickname, Machine Gun Kelly? Well, that's another uh, fascinating thing because uh, he didn't actually like machine guns. It was Catherine's idea to get him a machine gun. She bought him a machine gun at a pawn shop in Fort Worth. Kelly was the kind of guy, kind of like Bailey, who'd like to. Uh, he, he didn't want the bank to even know they'd been robbed half the time. He liked to work with a concealed weapon, and he'd just walk right up to the teller, and uh, he would look like one of the bank's customers because he'd always be well dressed and well mannered, uh, and he would do basically just charm the money from the uh, from the tellers. But Catherine really wanted him to have a bigger reputation and to be thought of as you know, a, a tougher guy. And, and she, in fact, liked a lot of publicity. She really saw her name in lights or wanted to see it in lights. So she gets this gun for him and then uh, starts going around the various speakeasies around uh, Dallas and Fort Worth and uh, talking about how good her husband is with a machine gun, telling stories like he can write his name on the side of a barn with it and he can shoot walnuts off a fence post. And all of these stories sort of become, you know, legend around town and the local police begin hearing about it. And they've got their eye on Kelly anyway, because he's, he never seems to be doing any work yet. He's driving these big fancy cars and he's so well-dressed and they figure something's got to be up with him. So when the, uh, when the kidnapping occurs and he gets uh, identified as the kidnapper, the Dallas police begin sending all of their information into the FBI and they build a, a wanted poster for him, right? And they describe him a, as a um, kind of a psychopathic killer and uh, known to be a, an expert machine gunner. So from that description, the press picks up the machine gun piece, they stick it in his name, and he becomes the infamous machine gun Kelly. And did George Kelly ever kill anyone? 
he's not known to have killed anybody. I mean, they're the only he's he admitted to uh, shooting a bank guard in the in the arm once, and that was in the book that his son wrote about him. Uh, but other than that, uh, although he fired uh, weapons several times, uh, he's not known to have killed anybody. No. So I'm from Minnesota, and I have a fascination with Jewish mobster Isidore Blumenfeld, better known as Kid Can. And it seems so unlikely to me that there would be a connection between Can and George Kelly, but there was. Uh, Kid Can was connected to some of the ransom money from the Urschel kidnapping. Yeah, I think uh, that he and uh, he and Kelly did cross paths several times, but uh, St. Paul was one of the best places to have your money laundered. They had a lot of illegal gambling going on up there, and uh, they had a lot of connected people who could move money. Uh, and uh, Kid Can being one of them. And so immediately after the kidnapping, Kelly and his partner, Albert Bates, uh, they send a bunch of their money up to St. Paul to have it uh, have it laundered. And part of that laundering crew gets caught with the marked bills, and they get arrested. Those were the first arrests in the, uh, in the case, and that's what tipped off Kelly that uh, people were after him. And that's why he went on the run. So George Kelly is sent to Alcatraz and eventually Leavenworth Prison. Uh, can you talk about the last years of his life? How did it all end for him? Yeah, I mean, he he was in the first class of criminals that went to Alcatraz. And Alcatraz had been created by Homer Cummings, uh, the attorney general, as, as a punitive penal colony um, that nobody could escape from. The idea of rehabilitation there was kind of out the window. Uh, he wanted to have Alcatraz for the worst of the worst. And so, you know, people like Al Capone get sent there, but also people like Machine Gun Kelly get sent there. Uh, and he's in, the, he's in the first 100 uh, prisoners that get placed on the island. And, you know, the island is particularly inhospitable you know and it's cold it's damp it's it's just a horrible place with with no thought of escape and they make it worse by for initially not even allowing the prisoners to talk to one another uh they have limited amount of mail they can't listen to the radio uh they don't get newspapers they eat dinner in a mess hall uh that is uh, virtually silent with guys with, armed with shotguns and machine guns walking along a catwalk above with tear gas canisters uh, positioned above their tables. So uh, so Kelly, who who's a fairly intelligent guy, I mean, this is, uh, this is a tough adjustment for him, particularly because he's limited to, I believe it was, I think he could write four letters to Catherine. And he is, as you said before, he he is he head over heels in love with this woman, and he he writes you know all of these these very romantic love letters to her. She, uh, she's in prison in the in the Midwest, and uh, in a women's prison. And part of the torture was that 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 he couldn't he couldn't write enough letters. He couldn't express himself uh, early on, uh, and that frustrated him to no end. But he, he and Bates, they enroll in correspondence courses from the University of Southern California, uh, and they kind of have a contest with one another to see who can do better. Uh, and they both end up doing extremely well. Bates end, ends up actually bettering him in a, in a number of things. But Kelly uses his knowledge to you know, try to beg his way out of, 
Alcatraz, but uh, it doesn't work. Uh, Hoover is just relentless about it, won't let him come up for parole, uh, won't let him uh, be retried, even though, the, you know, the, as I said before, the trial was conducted by Herschel's best friend and hunting partner. <laughs> you know, things happen in the 30s that you couldn't get away with these days. But uh, he ends up there, you know, until very late in his life when he's finally transferred back to Leavenworth, uh, where he ends up dying a couple of years later of a heart attack. And does he ever see Catherine again? He never did. He never he never saw her again, but when he went to Leavenworth, he was able to write with write her more often. And uh, you know, she she remained uh in love with him uh, if if you can believe her letters uh as well and uh, you know, I have a number of them in the book. And she ends up getting loose though because uh she befriends a trial attorney uh, who's visiting the, another prisoner at the uh, in the prison, and he petitions for a retrial on her behalf. And uh, the FBI uh, refuses to give up their uh, their files on the case, and for some reason they can't find the transcript. So the judge the judge says, "Okay, well then I'm just releasing her on bond, and uh, if she gets out of prison and never goes back." J. Edgar Hoover was reticent about letting out these gangsters, these very same gangsters who had helped make his career. I know that Elvin Creepy Carpus, uh, who ended up being the longest-serving inmate in Alcatraz history, only got out because he outlived Hoover. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think the, they sent him back to Canada, did they not? They did, yeah. He ended up in a in a federal prison in Washington for a short time. But uh, yeah, he, you know, Hoover's attitudes were kind of set in the late 20s and 30s. And in the 30s, these gangsters could get out of prison so easily. I mean, they'd, they'd, they'd end up getting convict, caught and convicted for something. They'd go into prison, they'd bribe a guard, and sooner or later, they're, they're back out. Uh, and Hoover just hated the prison system and the people that, that ran it. He thought they were, you know... Um, not not near tough enough and uh, too easily corrupted and bribed. And and so, you know, once he set his mind to not letting these guys out of prison, he, he didn't relent. <laughs> so I've got one more question for you, and it might be a good one to end on because you might be able to, to break some mythology for us. The history books say that Machine Gun Kelly coined the term G-Men. Did, did that really happen? He was given credit for that for, man, uh, 50 years <laughs> until uh, the FBI finally admitted that it's probably not true. Uh, the way the story happened is, you know, they, he and Kel, he and Catherine have been on, on the lamb, you know, for six or eight weeks. And, uh, you know, they're driving from city to city to place to place, hiding out here, hiding out there, staying one step ahead of the FBI uh, until finally they're in Memphis, Tennessee. And, um, they're hiding out in this house, and uh, the the FBI stages a stages a raid with local police, and they they find him there, and they arrest him and Catherine and haul him off to jail. But when Hoover describes the how the arrest happened, he says that Kelly cowered in the corner, dropped his gun, and put up his hands and said, "Don't shoot, G men, don't shoot." But what he really said was when he saw them. 
he set his gun down on a side table and he said, I wondered what took you guys so long. And then they took him off to jail. But that wasn't a good enough story for the FBI. And Hoover was looking to make, you know, heroes out of his agents. And he needed a good nickname for them. And uh, somehow he liked this idea of G-men, you know, government men. And uh, so he he and his publicity machine kind of manufactured that story and uh, told it and retold it. I mean, he told, he, he told that story until the day he died and it stayed on the FBI's official website until, you know, just a few years ago. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it, it, there's some evidence that, that it was Catherine who said something to that effect. She said, uh, uh, she's reported in one place to have said, you know, Oh, don't, don't worry. She puts her arms around uh, George and says, don't, don't worry about it. The, the, the G's are everywhere and they would have gotten us. Something to that effect. Thank you, Joe Urschel, for your time today. Okay. It was nice talking to you. Thanks for having me on. I'm Eric Rivenus, and that's it for this week's episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. Good day to you and have a wonderful new year. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.